Hi, Tara. How I'm wonderful you? yourself, Carl. Fantastic. Uh, tell us about your day today. How's it been? You know, it's been a great day um, and, and actually a great week. I was up at site this week, so on our project. And, you know, it always gets me lots of enthusiasm when I'm up on site and seeing what's happening and uh, realizing that, you know, we're really building an amazing gold deposit and, and a project which, uh, you know, really is a bit of a unicorn in this market. Yes, so every just so everyone knows, Tara Christie is the president, uh, director, president, and CEO of Banyan Gold Corp. Um, do you want to kind of uh, take me to how you got involved in the company? Well, you know, originally I was appointed to the board way back in 2012, along with the acquisition of uh, what was then the flagship asset of the company, the Highland Project. And then, you know, we went through a couple of CEOs and the market really wasn't there for the Highland project. It's a little bit, a little bit tougher. And then uh, in 2016, we were interviewing CEOs as a board for, for this company. And um, at that time, I had some other personal success. I had about four things going on. You know, I was on the environmental assessment board and that wrapped up. I was, I had a consulting company and my largest client was Kamenak, which bought out, got bought out by Gold Corp for $520 million. And I didn't want to work for a major because I'd already worked for a major in my career. And I had a large land package, which my father and I, who's a geologist, we'd acquired over 20 years and I sold that to a junior and all I had to do was sit on the board after that. And so all four of those things, oh, and my alluvial mining operation, uh, we sold it to some of the TV uh, miners. We had Todd Hoffman and others, and we'd been doing work for them and Rick Ness and others. So, you know, that was, you know, kind of took that out of something that I had to actively manage. And so all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm down four jobs. Surely I can take on one and, and uh, put my hand up to be the CEO of Banyan. And then within half a year, you know, acquired the, the Ormac asset, which we've taken from having, you know, just being a prospect to within by 2019, you know, we knew we had something. And then 2020, we had 900,000 ounces. 2022, we had 4 million ounces. And here we are in 2023 with 6.2 million ounces. So, you know, it's been a pretty short journey to add that much value and, and show um, really that, that you can do it in a pretty short time period. Yes, and that is why I call you the executor. <laughs> okay, so uh, so you've been involved in the company since 2012. Um, you started on the board, and then you, you said, you know what, I've got time. I can get super hyper-focused here. Um, why don't we switch over to cap structure and uh, the, the last financing, what, what valuation was it done at, and how many shares are outstanding today? Sure. So fully diluted, we're at about 300 million shares outstanding. The last financing was in December, and it was three of my longtime or big shareholders so uh, that participated in it to raise $12.2 million. Uh, front end of that, we have a structure in Canada called Charity Flow Through. So to the market, it was basically 57 cents a share uh, to our current share price, where I think today we dropped as low as 36 cents. Um, but, you know, kind of our average in the last while has been about 40 cents. So, you know, it was a, it was a good financing with really solid shareholders. Um, and, you know, I know that with our shareholder base that we have now, and, and that's partly been part of our success, was getting really solid shareholders that understood both the timeline and the trajectory of what it's going to take to really add value at this project. Okay, and when it comes to strategic shareholders, uh, anyone that you'd like to sort of highlight? So, you know, my two funds, Franklin and Fidelity. You know, Fidelity is a is very smart money, uh, 7.4%. They made an investment after doing significant due diligence for six months, and same with Franklin Gold and Precious Metals. But in terms of companies that are strategic, we have Victoria Gold, which is a mine which is right near us. They just started, you know, they built a heap leach mine during the pandemic, which is incredibly, building a mine is hard. Building it during a pandemic is exceptionally hard. And they've succeeded and they're, you know, finishing getting the kinks out of it. And they will be a 200,000 ounce producer. Um, and their feasibility study all in sustaining costs is about 1100 They're currently around 1500 but still putting capital and, and improving the project. But, you know, they're a lookalike for one model of what our project could be. 
they're just 25 kilometers as the crow flies away. So, you know, there's a direct analog for people to look at and say, oh my, this is what this project could be. Uh, and here's some actual capital costs of what they built during a pandemic, as well as the, the you know, the costs going here through this pretty inflationary period. Yes, uh, obviously, we the Bank of Canada raised rates yesterday, I believe. A uh, little bit, took some people by surprise. Uh, most people thought they were going to pause again, but uh, lots of... Um, you know, hotter, hotter inflation, some sticky inflation coming in when we thought it was going to be coming down significantly. Um, and that's not necessarily good for the price of gold short term, but it really hasn't done too much. Um, kind of kind of sitting in the I think it's the mid 1900s U.S. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on that, by the way, while, while we're on that topic? Well, you know, that's still a pretty great gold price for the gold producers. And, and those are who the real acquirers are of projects like mine or single asset producers like Victoria Gold. And that they're cash flowing very significantly, whether it's $2,000 and optically that looks good or, or 1950, a lot of producers are making a tremendous amount of money at these gold prices. So while the general public really hasn't caught on to gold or gold mining um, and the value that's in it, it's, uh, it, you know, the leverage right now is pretty significant. So it really surprises me. And I've been a gold bug for a long time and, and I've made a lot of money in gold. And even through these markets and even now, I'm, I'm still pretty happy with my investments in gold and gold mining companies because I'm a long-term believer. You know, I look at what is happening in our, you know, environment um, economically. Uh, yep, rates are up a little bit, but long term, what's the where's the store of wealth? What what is uh, what has been a tried and true investment, which is going to be come back in favor? And I've, I um, I've been collecting gold nuggets since I was ten, and so that's kind of a hobby. And I have had more people calling to ask me where they can buy gold, where they can buy gold nuggets than I've ever had. So that shows you that there is a slowly growing swell of people more interested in gold and looking for alternative investments. Yeah, and I urge our listeners right now, thanks for joining us, uh, all of you, um, to sort of, I think it's pretty well known that we're headed towards a recession at some point. Um, You know, people have been calling for that for over a year now. Um, There is a lot of, uh, I, I know personally, I haven't spoken to a business owner in the last six weeks uh, that hasn't told me that it's slowed down significantly. And I've also, my follow-up question to them is, uh, are people spending more on their credit cards? And absolutely, Boots on the Ground has told me that, yes, we, people are spending more on credit. Why am I saying this? If people look at what happens to the price of gold uh, when we head into a recession for about two years post-recession, if you go back and look at a 100-year history, Um, pretty significant things happen in the gold space so right now um, as gold has consolidated in a a healthy way after it's run above 2000 um, you know this is the time when you want to look at your your juniors junior gold uh, exploration development stories and producers Um, I just want to I did digress there I want to go back to the cap structure so if we if we were looking at a pie chart and um, sort of what percentage would be retail unknown and then institutional so and, and of course inside retail and unknown is 30 percent um institutional um roughly another 60 percent um or high net worth individuals who have been longtime shareholders and then just under 10 percent of uh, oh sorry um, I've got Victoria Gold and Cisco in there, so that's that's fifteen percent for the two corporates that I have. Um, management uh, and insiders is around seven percent, of which I'm just under five percent, and I'm the third CEO, so I didn't get any half cent stock. I've actually had to buy in the market, and that's something that I look for when I'm investing in companies: is does the CEO have real skin in the game, or did they get founder stock? Um, and so, if you look at my SETI filings, you'll see just in the last two two and a half years or so, I've put over one point five million dollars in. So, you know, I'm I'm in this to make money alongside my shareholders, not not to get a salary. I've done well enough in my life to be able to, uh, you know, to not have to to have a day job. 
but I really believe in this project. I'm super excited about what we've done. And I'm, you know, I ran a public company or a private company for 20 years. So every dollar, you know, when you're running a private company and times are tough, you really know where every dollar is going and you manage it. So, you know, that's one thing, Carl, I think that if people are investing in junior mining exploration companies, they need to look at management team and what their experience is and how much money gets spent in the ground versus how much goes to GNA and paying salaries and how much money uh, the executive team and insiders have actually put in in real cash versus that they're gifted through, you know, founder shares or other thing. That to me is something that's really telling. And then I look at things like jurisdiction. Uh, is it a safe jurisdiction? Like we're seeing some pretty, um, you know, look what happened to Kinross with their properties in Russia. You know, who thought that would happen to a, uh, you know, a large mining company? So jurisdictional risk is real um, from a, you know, an expropriation perspective. And then you got to look for geological potential. Where can you actually see the scale of mining deposit that's meaningful that it will actually be mined um, and where it has infrastructure? That's a huge problem. You know, lots of postage stamp deposits in the middle of nowhere are never going to get mined. And there are a lot of promoters in the mining business. And that's why in talking to you and you talking to CEOs, you get to actually drill down and talk to people about what projects and what companies are actually walking the walk and who people should start to look at. Yes, I agree with pretty much everything you just said. I did get a, uh, a DM here, and I do urge people to DM me your questions. I know a lot of people don't feel comfortable coming up as a speaker. Totally fine with that. Just just DM me the questions. So someone wanted to uh, have you elaborate a little bit on your past. And uh, you know what? I'm going to ask you a question I already know the answer to. But um, if you can kind of uh, you know give us more of an insight, this audience more insight into your um, exploration experience, boots on the ground exploration, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the companies that you worked with previous. Great. No, I'm happy to do that. You know, I, I actually grew up with a geologist as a father. And so, you know, was collecting soil samples and out in the bush from a pretty early age. And there were some pretty tough times in the mining industry back then. So it certainly wasn't a walk in the park, you know, learned how to run exploration programs at pretty low cost. And then I spent uh, quite a few years in the placer mining industry producing gold, you know, privately run companies and the alluvial mining, kind of like you see the Todd Hoffmans at Gold Rush, etc. Except for you really have to make money because you don't get the extra revenue from TV and sponsorship. So it is a tough business. Um, we were one of the larger placer mining operations and I spent, you know, a good 15 years running that. Um, and making money at it, despite some of the gold prices. You know, that's when gold dropped to 250. Um, at the same time, I went off and I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in geotechnical engineering, despite the fact that I, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then I discovered that, oh my God, I'm really good at this geology thing and I kind of love it. Um, and then, you know, through the course of that, I started to sit on the boards of public companies, uh, private exploration with my father, you know, amassed a fairly large land package of a gold bearing um, district. That, that we, the leader, sold to a junior. Um, I even did some various consulting contracts, including working with Kamenak when they got bought, bought, bought out by Gold Corp. Um, I did a few years working for Newmont, and particularly on Hope Bay, but I was actually their registered lobbyist in Canada. So I really got to understand how majors think and what they're looking for in projects. And, and that's why projects that I acquire for Banyan really need to hit that tier one status that would be potentially acquired by a major mining company because they have the hallmarks. They have to have enough ounces. They need to have, you know, the potential to, to have infrastructure put in so that you can get below that threshold of production costs that, that you need to be tier one. So, um, you know, I think all of that experience has really set me up well to take on Banyan. And, and it's been a challenge, you know, the markets haven't been easy and, and I haven't been, um, you know, involved in, in lots of public companies before as a CEO. So it's been a bit of a learning experience and one where I've had to, to really work hard to raise money, develop trust with shareholders. And, and I think that's something that I think we've done well. And now I've got a pretty solid shareholder base of, of my major shareholders that uh, I think are going to help us really get to the next phase. Okay, so I'd say you have a very good relationship with your shareholders. And as I've said in our morning drives, um, a lot of other executives bring your name up, uh, obviously, in high regard. Uh, you're one of the hardest working people uh, 
you know, in the industry, in the business. Um, why don't we talk about sort of some of the goals that you had when you, you know, went onto the board, came on as CEO and president. What were some of the early goals that you had and, um, and how did you achieve them? And then we'll tie that into now in the latest news release. Well, when I first joined the board, uh, you know, it was alongside acquisition of an asset and there was another CEO, and, you know, that was kind of like, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is interesting, great asset, this guy knows what he's doing. But then there were terrible markets. And, and then by the time I took over as CEO, I had a little bit more, um, a few more war wounds to kind of know, well, this isn't easy. You know, I took it over. There was no money in the till. We needed a different asset. I had to do the first six months without taking a salary to really um, build the company back up, find this asset, learn how to finance. Um, and so those were pretty major milestones where, you know, make sure that you've got a strong treasury, build good shareholders, um, come up with a plan, find an asset that, that actually is going to let you um, advance this company. So those were the first goals that were successful. And then, you know, our first major financing was in October of 2019, and that was to put together our first resource. And money was still really, really tight. So, you know, I remember I went to a Cisco Royalties at that time, which is a really big company, and I asked them for $400,000 in my financing. And the, the guy laughed at me because he said, didn't you forget a zero? Nobody asks me for less than a million. And I'm like, no, you know, I can do this really cheaply. I don't want to have extra dilution that I don't need. And, um, you know, I want to get out and test our geological model. And we went out and did that. And, we, you know, we told them we thought we could see a half a million ounces at 0.5. You know, we came back with 900,000 ounces um, at $2 an ounce in expiration costs. And that's a pretty big leverage to the current gold yeah. price. Our current, we're still under $7 per ounce. So, you know, 1950 is a pretty great gold price. That's a lot of leverage between finding cost and, uh, and the selling cost of an ounce of gold, even though, you know, there's still the cost of extracting it and, and permitting. There's a lot of room in there to make money. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I had some friends message me today and say, you know, I saw the Banyan Gold, you're doing a Twitter space. So, why, what's, what do you like about this company? And I said, a lot of leverage to the gold price. Obviously, um, you know, there's different risk uh, there for everybody to, to look at. You're, you're not a producer yet, but um, I, I, I love what, you, what you're doing. What would you say has been one of the most difficult things and challenges for the company uh, over your tenure as uh, CEO? Well, learning how to raise money because I didn't have those connections. Um, and you know that it, you look at a lot of these financings and they're very expensive. People end up paying bankers and significant fees. And if you look at our financing last December, we didn't pay any fees um, and our legal costs were $10,000. So, you know, that, that shows that we have direct relationships and we're not actually just hiring people to go raise money for us. So that's been a, a real skill and it, and it saves our shareholders a lot of money. Um, and it, it's tough. It's a brutal market out there. Um, talking to shareholders and how to set realistic expectations so that you can exceed them. You know, you, you need to set expectations so people understand the value of what you have and what you're going to deliver, but leave yourself some upside to pleasantly surprise people because the market tends to factor in what you said you're going to do. So that's another, you know, important lesson. And it's always changing. The market keeps changing. You know, the, the sentiment for gold right now is is fairly negative in, in sort of the retail sector, which really surprises me given the actual value of gold and the scarcity and the fact that we've had so little replenishment of resources by the major companies. So, um, it, you know, it's kind of like you wait till there's the maximum negativity before you start to invest. <laughs> Yeah, you kind of you take the it's contrarian investing basically or speculating. Okay, um, so financing has been one of the the biggest hurdles for you. Um, and do you feel comfortable now, given um, where you've taken things and how many ounces you have, um, that you have those relationships where it's like, well, if I need to go back into the market and race race, um, you know, two million bucks or five million bucks, that it's not that that difficult to do, even given the market. I Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. For me, it's more really what is the strategy, how I'm going to add value, and, and it's changing. You know, we now have 6.2 million ounces. Simply adding another 2 million ounces, you know, is, is that going to 
to move the market? No. So we're doing all of the work to really show that this is a mineable project. Look at the, the process option, options. Start some of the preliminary engineering without spending a fortune on it. And you don't have to spend a fortune on it to show the optionality here and show that it's economic. And that's kind of the next hurdle. So I think... You know, that's that's also a part of it is you can't just keep doing the same old thing and think that the market's going to reward you for it. You really have to adapt what you're doing for your project stage and for the market and for what's being looked for. You know, I'm planning to tee this up. So it is a very compelling target for lots of mining companies to look at. In the meantime, tee it up that if I get to advance it all the way through permitting and feasibility study, or if Banyan gets to build it, that the right team's in place to take it down the road. I don't honestly think that's going to be what happens. There are very, very few 6 million ounce projects that are right on surface that have two mines beside them in a jurisdiction where you can permit. Two mines have just been permitted with one First Nation that understands mining. We've got existing roads and infrastructure, you know, power lines, highway, even cell phone service on the property. That's exceptional. Like, find me another one that that looks like this. Right. Yeah, and and I did get a a DM there asking if you could elaborate or talk about the infrastructure around. So you you just touched on it a little bit. Anything, did you want to sort of go a little deeper? Well, the other thing is, you know, in this environment where ESG is so important, that power line that was just built, not only does it have capacity, and it was just rebuilt in 2021, it has twice the capacity to its current energization level, but the, the hydroelectric dam that it's connected to is only 50 kilometers away. So green power is super important. We're already in a brownfield area with roads that are existing, so you're not worrying about, you know, pristine environment building roads into new areas, which can be real challenges for permitting. Um, And, you know, that it's also, you can look at our project and you can look at what it costs the project down the road, Victoria Gold, which built through the pandemic. What did it cost them to put in their road? What did it cost them to put in their power line? And then you could kind of look at their capital costs. And if our project is a heap leach project, which is not the only option for our project, you could say, okay, so let's trade off the better infrastructure with inflation and cost overruns. And maybe you can estimate what the cost of building this mine would be. And that's a huge advantage too, because we've got a mine that was just built down the road where we know where its costs are. Um, you know, that's a big uncertainty for investors and for mining companies um, when they're coming into a new jurisdiction is, oh, what might it cost to operate here and to build a mine? We kind of have a comparable right there. Yep. So I, I potentially might be able to go up there. Uh, we, we've discussed that uh, uh, you know, off air about maybe doing a site visit. So if, if someone was to, you know, if I was to go there... Um, what does that look like? What air, like what airport would I be coming into, and then how far of a drive is it? So I was up there yesterday and uh, at the site, and then I came back, you know, by by dinner time yesterday. So it is extremely accessible. So you, I would fly from Vancouver to Whitehorse, and then there is a, an airport in Mayo. So um, and you can take a wheeled plane to from Whitehorse to Mayo, which is about an hour flight. And then it's about a 20-minute drive to our project from the airport on a highway. So we're not in the middle of nowhere. Um, And there's other options. If you drove from Whitehorse, it would take you roughly four and a half hours to drive on the highway without flying to the main airport. So again, very accessible main highway right beside it. That must be a beautiful drive. (laughs) It is. (laughs) And, you know, having the highway and the main road through it makes tours of our site really quite short because it's like, okay, you just drove over six million ounces. There's the power line and your cell phone works. And, you know, here's the geological (laughs) model and here's the core. And people are like, wow, that was, you know, most site visits, you have to drive on a bumpy road for a long time. And um, it's like, how did this happen right here beside underneath a highway at that? (laughs) Wow. Okay, that's that's pretty cool, actually. Um, when it comes to the management team, who's heading this off boots on the ground? And actually, and why were you there? Why? What? What was? What did you have to go to site for? Well, I always tried to have various things. One, I like to go up and be present and talk to my managers and talk to my crew. We were doing some site tours because we have a lot of interest in the company, and over the next few months, uh, we have. Uh, 
have various tours happening. I also had Brad Thrall up there who's helping us with the metallurgy and the engineering and understanding the potential flow charts and options for this project as a mining project. Um, I also had a couple other technical experts that that were there um, looking at some geology, uh, talking about some structural analysis, looking at new targets and getting their recommendations. You know, these types of deposits, and lots of people have probably heard of Snowline, and we're the same age of mineralization, the same style. The key difference is they found the source of their mineralization. We're still in the rocks that that the mineralization leaked out into. And so, you know, a bit of our of our mystery and our excitement is the, the search for the elusive intrusive uh, which might have higher grade, it, it you know, would give us some indications of how large this might be. So, you know, while we've been expanding this deposit to like five kilometer by two kilometer footprint, we still haven't found where it came from. So that is something that, that we were working on. So I had a whole bunch of meetings. We had a bunch of experts there all talking to each other, uh, talking with my managers. Uh, it was really exciting. I always get excited when I'm out in the field. Springtime for exploration geologists usually is, is really exciting. It gets me really motivated to work hard because there's, there's just so much. And, there's, and the summer season's short. And while we, you know, we operate year round, the summer is still the best time to do some of those other exploration activities like soil sampling and trenching. So I've been doing this all my life too. So spring and summer for exploration just always gets me excited um, just with the prospect of new discoveries. So this, uh, this deposit is still open in all directions? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, particularly to the east and the west at Powerline and Oryx Hill at depth, absolutely. Um, Powerline, we may be coming up on an edge as we go towards Airstrip, but we know Airstrip dips underneath it, so it will truncate it. Um, Airstrip is open east and west and down dip as well, so lots of room to continue to grow this. We're focusing on Oryx Hill right now with our drilling because that's where we left off with that high-grade right near surface. And again, that, that might be uh, pretty interesting from a starter pit perspective. And then we had to fill in this spring between Oryx Hill and Powerline. There was this big gap in the middle, which was purely because the best time to drill that, because it's fairly um, wet ground and you want to do the least environmental disturbance, the best time to drill that is, you know, February, March, April. Right. When you... Um when you put your head down at night and you're, I'm, I'm pretty sure you, you keep thinking a lot. You're like a thinker. I get up at four um, <laughs> thinking. Yeah. So you, you've always got your, you know, I, I can just see it. You're, you're hyper-focused. What gives you the heebie-jeebies? I haven't said those words in a long <laughs> time, but what, what kind of do you look at and say, ah, oh, I'm a little nervous about that. Like what's the biggest threat? Let's get into your head a little bit. You know, um, how this project will be mined uh, whether it's a heap leach or a mill and a CIL, both of which are economic. And, and it's something that's been very topical because we've been talking about it right now and, you know, keeping an open mind. Um, I always worry about, you know, making sure that I have longevity of the jobs of the people that I hire. We have a really great crew. So that's something that I always worry about. And in this market, it's tough. And thankfully, we have a super strong treasury. So I'm well ahead of the game. You know, we have over $14.5 million in the bank. Uh, which is, you know, three years of GNA if we need it, plus a pretty significant uh, exploration budget. But I, you know, we have some really great people. And I think that's part of your social responsibility is to make sure like lots of exploration jobs are three to four months or two months. Um, we're 11 months and we've developed a real core crew. Um, so that's something that, that worries me. And then just overall what's going on in the market, interest rates and the community and um, you know, the people, and, and you see that, like, we have so many people that want to come back to work for us. We've actually, at times, shortened up people's shifts so that we can give everybody that wants to work for us a shift or has worked for us rather than... So that worries me because it means that things aren't as rosy out there um, as people say. And, you know, inflation in some of these small communities is is pretty significant. So being an employer, you, you need to make sure that you continue to get people enough work to support their families. So that worries me. Um, yeah, overall markets, gold price, all that stuff. <laughs> yep. So someone wanted to know, um, you know, about the indigenous communities around there and do you work with them? And if so, what, what program do you have in place? So I've been working in the Yukon for 35 years and I've worked with First Nations all across the community uh, or across the Yukon. 
I actually run a charity, which I started 12 years ago, which focuses on getting kids to school and works directly with First Nations communities all around the Yukon. So I'm pretty well known with lots of, and that's a hundred percent volunteer initiative. We've given out almost $2 million now in the last 10 years and, and a lot more in boots on the ground. So what is Banyan doing? Um, we, we have a pretty broad program. We, the first thing that we do is really making sure we preferentially hire locally and train people. We put extra training into people from the First Nation community. And there, we have one First Nation. It's the Nachonaik Dunn First Nation. Um, they, uh, they have a settled land claim agreement, which is different than British Columbia. It, it has a lot more certainty for mining companies and government in that they have their own lands where they have effectively fee simple title and we understand where their territories. And then there's a new environmental assessment process which was created in the Yukon roughly 18 years ago. Um, it really started to, to be implemented, and I was on the board for 12 years, which really makes sure that First Nations have a meaningful role and means of participating in the assessment of projects. Um, so that's really important, because, and, and that's something we take really seriously, is talking to the, the First Nation about our project, both during permitting and every year, you know, our preseason report goes to them. We talk about what we're going to do. Um, you know, we have community members and land members out to the project to look at that and give their thoughts uh, and talk about concerns that they have. And that's, you know, that's um, a really important part of working in Canada's North. And we sponsor all kinds of events and are involved particularly in things related to schools and youth uh, that's something that, you know, Banyan's real passion is, is, is really helping the next generation um, of First Nations in the Yukon. Okay, thanks for that answer. Uh, completely going in a different direction, I did get a DM and someone asked if you've ever sold shares in the company. No, I have never sold a share. So you've only ever accumulated? I've only ever accumulated, yeah, including options. If you look at when I've exercised options, I've paid the taxes and held them. Okay. Uh, do you know what your cost average is? Oh, I think it's probably around 20, 20 cents or so. That's on one of my projects to do is to actually figure that out. Um, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, I've got over 6 million shares. Um, so I, I know what my value is on a daily basis and, and I will have to figure that out eventually at tax time, but I'm just haven't <laughs> had time for that. So it's around there. So here's a question every CEO hates, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because if I'm an investor listening, I'd want to kind of know. Um, so you answered it, answer it if you want and, and how you want, of course. Um, and uh, these are obviously forward-looking statements and complete hypotheticals. But if, let's say, your cost average is 20 cents, uh, whatever valuation, um, what, what, what would you be happy with? If you were to, if all the time you put in, all the shares, everything you've done, all the hard dollars you put in, and you knowing this deposit, what what multiple, like what valuation would you love to see this thing get bought out? Other than the obvious, well, as much as I can get. I mean, really, would it be a 3X, a 5X, 10X? Well, I'm only a 4% shareholder. I have some larger shareholders that have been pretty clear um, that there's a, a price over a dollar that I better not even bother to come knock on their door if it's less than that. Um, so it, you know, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't consider any offer that comes in because you're bound to do that as, as management. If, if somebody makes you an offer, um, you have to consider whether it's good value for your shareholders. But, you know, I, I look at our peers and, and our current valuation at $10 per ounce. Other peers, you know, kind of average is trading around 30. Um, you look at what Kamenak was bought out for and what other other companies have bought out for, and it's, you know, it's usually closer to $100, $150 per ounce. So there's a lot of room in there. Um, we're under no pressure right now. These markets are clearly not a seller's market for a junior mining company. And so that's part of our, our strategy is make sure we preserve capital. We add value um, with what we're doing. Uh, we don't dilute our shareholders unnecessarily. Um, and and we really make sure that we tee it up for the time when this project will be appreciated. Um, you know, if a major came along and offered us 50 cents a share or 70 or 80 cents a share, I don't think I'd have much uptake from my big shareholders. Um, so it's not really all about me. Yeah. I don't need a day job. I've got lots of things I could do. I do this for more than just a salary. 
um, I really think yeah. this has a lot of value. Sure. So right now, maybe fully diluted, the company's worth around 120 or so million dollars. Yeah. Um, and it's really taken off, you know, since 2018, 2019, you know, the stock was trading, sorry, sub 10 cents. And uh, right now it's at 37 cents. And I, I'm not sure exactly what the high 57. was. 57. 57. Um, so, there's a lot, a lot of legs, and you, and you, like you said, you really don't have the wind behind your back right now in this market. Um, but you know, a lot of investors and speculators that I, I network with that love gold, they're accumulating shares right now in companies like yours that are well run, well funded, and have a lot of ounces in the ground with blue sky potential. And that, and you know, Banyan really checks off a lot of those boxes for me personally. Um, okay, so. What would you say, and I've asked you this question, so uh, sorry that I'm asking it again, but this is a completely different audience. W let's go over what is on the to-do list this year, and what are your focuses? Well, the first was to deliver this resource, and you know, it's right in the range where we said it was going to be, um, you know, 6.2 million ounces at 0.61. We did increase the cutoff grade, <coughs> pardon me, um, because we thought that grade was really important. You know, if we did use the same parameters as in our previous resource, we would have had 6.5 million ounces. And I do encourage people to look at the sensitivity tables for the resource because it also shows you the optionality for, you know, if we'd have picked a 0.5 cutoff, we still would have had 4.5 million ounces across the deposits at 0.95. Now, you know, there, there's other factors that come into play, strip ratio, um, and the economics, which is what we are starting to work on. So now that we have our new resource, we really can see some trends in it, high-grade trends. We need to now do some of the hard work. And we're not going to do full-blown engineering, but we are going to put a mining eye on it and really look, where's our infrastructure going to go? Where could you have starter pit or starter pits? If we are to drill this out to indicate it, some of it, um, we, we really need to understand where we'd get the most value for that. And that would be, you know, just drilling it off. Uh, in the areas that you probably start mining. And if you take, say, a Victoria Gold as an example, they had 2 million ounces in reserves, which is a, a higher uh, classification of a gold resource, like a resource is, is an inferred resource that we have. You know, there's some margin for error, but as you drill it off at tighter spacing, you, you move up the categories to what's called a reserve. Um, and so when you get mining and you do a feasibility study, you want that higher classification, but you don't want to convert the whole 6.2 million ounces because that would be very expensive. So right now we are doing a 25,000 meter program of which we're 17,000 meters in uh, focusing on some key areas of connection, some high-grade areas, areas where we originally made the discovery, which we only drilled 100 meters. So we know we're adding value and ounces with what we're drilling, and, that, and we want to continue to show there's blue sky. So that's one of our goals. Show this really is open. It has lots more growth. Focus on some of those higher-grade areas. Meanwhile, you know, as we're finishing our technical report, which we have to be done, has to be done by early July, do some of this modeling work to really understand where adding value, you know, drilling next is really going to add value. Um, some of that stuff is pretty exciting, um, you know, seeing, you know, just how the economics might play out. And, you know, we have to do a PEA, which is a preliminary economic assessment, which is sort of the next phase by December of 2025. But, you know, most exploration companies will have done most of the groundwork long in advance of that. So they understand what the project's going to look like. Um, so that part of the work is is pretty exciting and will really add value for shareholders because it's going to show mining companies what the options are and what the economics of this project would be, even without us doing a, a PEA, um, having that, that work done is pretty important. So, you know, those milestones for this year are going to be having more drill results to show that this is larger, of which we're well on track for. We've delivered the resource that we said we're going to do. We're going to show there's more growth and we're going to show what it might be uh, as a mining project. And we'll deliver our metallurgical results by, you know, fourth quarter this year. And rather than just putting out some, you know, here's some potential recoveries of this, we're actually going to work on a real PA level flow chart so people can see what the process options are and likely what the preferred option is for building this project, which is, uh, I think, really exciting. So thank, thanks for that. Uh, back to the DMs. Uh, uh, people want to go back to the uh, to the share structure. Um, 
when it comes to the the amount of shares outstanding, does that bother you that you have around 300 million shares outstanding, um, or you know? And 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 the other question was, uh, what can you do to keep the dilution down moving forward as you have to finance this thing as you grow? Well, the first thing to keep the dilution down is to make sure you spend your dollars while adding value. You know, and I think we've done that $7 per ounce. And remember, I'm the third CEO. There were significant numbers of shares outstanding before I took over. Do I think it would be worth a rollback? No, not really. Um, You know, a lot of companies, if you can't deliver catalysts, you spend a lot, it costs an awful lot of money to roll back. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily help you. And it doesn't help your original shareholders that helped you get there. I have some really solid shareholders and who's continued to participate pro rata. And so, you know, for that 60% of my large high, high net worth um, shareholders and institutions, it's not really dilution if they continue to participate um, so much as it would be, you know, if you were going out and finding new people, like a lot of companies have to do, you've, you've burned all your other investors. I still have some pretty happy shareholders who've made money. Um, and so, you know, I'm pretty confident to go back to them and talk to them about the next rounds of financing. So yes, having a lot of shares outstanding, you know, and it's more of a a concern here in North America than other places. Like in Australia, a lot of the very successful mining companies have way more shares outstanding. So yes, it takes more work when you have more shares outstanding, the price has to go up more for everybody to make money. Um, but it doesn't mean that the value is not there. So that's, it's not something that, that I worry about first and foremost. I know there are some shareholders that that's their key thing is share structure. Uh, I think they're missing a lot because if you don't look at management, how they're spending the money, uh, jurisdiction, whether the asset could actually move forward, I think you're missing a lot. Thanks for, the, uh, for answering that. So another DM, someone was wondering about... Um, uh, staffing and if you're having issues getting people to uh well i guess uh it, it, you know uh workers right now a lot of companies are complaining that they can't find workers are you having that problem no we have a really great loyal workforce and i think we're one of the preferential employers in the area so we actually have more people applying than we could possibly hire right now so we actually try to you know bring some of our people that have worked for us before on on maybe shorter shifts just so that they have work um, and we can kind of keep them. Um, yeah, but no, no problem hiring right now. There's a, a multitude of, and you know, we're different than a lot of exploration companies that are two to four months. We're 11 months of the year. So that gives people a lot more job security than uh, many other exploration companies. Yeah, that's good to talk about. So you can drill there 11 months out of the year. You could drill 12 months. We choose to take December and Jan- like half of December, all of January off. Um, but we still end up doing mechanical work and, and repairs and things. You need that downtime when you're drilling that hard all year round. You need to be not drilling for at least a month or a month and a half. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you can drill that, that often. Um, what would be, this is a question for me, what would your cost per meter be? Last year, it was 275 per meter Canadian all in, which for this jurisdiction is very, very low. We're budgeting in our, in our estimates this year, $300 per meter because there is some cost inflation. We have seen fuel come down from last year. But again, you know, it's, uh, if you compare us to a fly-in mining operation or a fly-in drilling operation, you know, they're probably $1,200 to $1,500 a meter versus our $300 per meter. Yeah. Okay. Um, what What was it maybe pre pre pandemic? Do you remember? Oh, we were under two fifty, two twenty. Yeah, it was significantly okay. lower. And you know, even in our in our two dollars per ounce, it might have been two hundred dollars per meter um, for that very first resource. You know, running a private company, I really. I really understand how to control costs and how to manage it. And that's one of the things that COVID gave us a huge advantage because, you know, I think we could have seen our costs escalate significantly more. But during COVID, we actually put in a lot of infrastructure and we actually own a lot of our, like we own all our camp buildings, we own our pickup trucks, we own our fuel tanks, and we upsize to, you know, a lot of exploration companies have to rely on barrels. 
but we get the full tanker truck in so we can get, you know, a 10, 15% discount on fuel um, because of that, uh, because we take 40,000 liters at a time, which is uh, a lot different than a lot of exploration companies. So the work that we did during the pandemic simply because it was hard um, to get things and you had to plan ahead a lot has actually put us in a really good positions to keep our costs low, even moving forward with inflation. Yeah, well, th- I appreciate that detailed answer. It's very important to go through those things. Um, uh, again, if you're just joining us now, we do have quite a lot of uh, listeners, a pretty big audience tonight, as expected. Uh, joining us is uh, Director, President, and CEO of Banyan Gold, Tara Christie, uh, a.k.a. the Exeter, ex- Executor. Sorry, that's my nickname for her. Um, okay, uh, when it comes to... Let, let's stick to sort of on-site right now. So... You're, you're just shy of 300 per meter. Um, you own some or all of your equipment? So we own a lot. Of, well, we don't own the drill and the driller contractor's equipment, but like our water truck, our shop, our, our camp buildings, our pickup trucks, we own all of that. We even own one okay. of our own water trucks for winter supply, um, which you know saves a tremendous amount of money. Right. Okay. Um, so do you have to use helicopters at all or is that that's just so out of the question? No, we have roads and we're able to build roads. So lots of existing roads to these main target areas. And we're almost we're also permitted to build winter roads, trails and uh, and 65 kilometers of railroads if we want to build build roads. So that's, you know, two important pieces of it. One, we have the ability to put in roads and two, we have a lot of existing roads. So it makes it really easy. Drill moves are easy. Um, you know, we don't have to have heli- and helicopters are ridiculously expensive right now with the price of fuel. Um, so yeah. very and, and dangerous and, you know, you have to have all kinds of safety yeah. protocols. So we're thankful to not use them in our exploration. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really uh, awesome to hear you talk like this about your site, because one of the companies I'm, I've uh, speculated in, you know, was basically helicopters for everything. You know, you're 4,500 uh, feet up or meters up there on a mountain. Sorry. Um, and they, they had a helicopter crash and someone died. Um, so, you know, and and it's super expensive. You can only drill three months out of the year if you're lucky. Um, you've got a very nice situation on your hands. Okay. So what haven't we covered here? Um, there, there, you know, am I missing anything? Is there anything you want to touch on? You know, I guess the thing that, um, you know, with the markets, people are like, oh, aren't you depressed? And, you know, the share price. And I'm like, no, you know, this is a really exciting time. We have a strong treasury. We've got great support. We're out there. We're able to put our head down when everybody else is not working and really do the work that we need to set ourselves up. And timing's everything in this business. If you miss cycles for permitting or other, you know, it really is get your project ready for the time. You know, don't start getting it ready when gold price changes. And so I'm pretty thankful for that opportunity and the support of our shareholders because now, and and technical people are available right now, which is great. Um, It really means that we're going to be able to add a lot of value. And yep, I think the fall is going to be an exciting time for gold projects personally. And that's a forward-looking statement. Uh, I'm pretty heavily vested in gold, so I'm I'm biased. Uh, But my real strategy is to tee this project up so that when gold prices turn and when the majors kind of realize that, oh my gosh, we're, we're out of reserves, where are we going to find a project where we can actually, you know, turn on quickly, that this project is ready and it's de-risked. And, uh, and that's pretty achievable, I think, with the trajectory we're on. Okay. Um, so last, last thing we'll touch on here is the Yukon Alliance, uh, mining in, 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 in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. I mean, are there any setbacks to doing that politically? I think I think there's a lot of support there, but do you want to just finish off on that? And you know, hopefully, I do get a site visit because I'd love to see it and explain it to people and take some video. But you know, if you can sort of explain, um, you know, why it's a good province to uh, to mine in. So, yeah, that is pretty unique. And Yukon was one of the first where the mining and exploration companies got together and formed a bit of a marking alliance and got the government involved in partly supporting it to save money and really 
talk about the good things in the mining industry collaboratively, which I think is is pretty important. So every year there's a tour and a conference which involved all the mining companies and exploration companies that want to participate. Um, and I think that is a difference. You know, we get government actually talking about the realities of, you know, how they're supporting mining and what the challenges and permitting and how they're addressing them, along with the mining companies that each get to, to speak to their projects. And, you know, there are some companies that really are having a hard time financing right now. So it's a great opportunity that they get to come to the conference, meet investors and analysts and media who are interested in projects, even if they don't have the budget to bring them up themselves. So I think it's a great initiative. As you get bigger and you have a lot of site tours, like we have a tremendous amount of interest in our project, it becomes less and less important. But then the larger companies, you know, it's great to support it so that the the smaller companies actually have the ability to get some connections with the analysts and the brokers and the, the investors who are going to help them move their projects forward. So it is unique and hopefully you get up, Carl, whether it's on that or one of our other site tours. Uh, our site's exceptionally easy to get to. You know, I was there yesterday morning and I was home by dinner time, um, which is uh, is a pretty unique from an exploration project perspective. And, you know, I could have driven, but I, I chose to fly because we had a bunch of guests, uh, which yeah. gave me a little bit of time for lunch and Whitehorse. so you took that that small Mm -hmm. plane uh after the original or the flight from vancouver yes wow god i've only done that once and it was a little (laughs) it's quite it's quite thrilling actually (laughs) Uh, you gotta have some adventure i've been doing that for all my life actually and my daughter you know, we, we fly a lot and in Canada, there are some big spaces between places and, and, and the little planes are a lot safer than helicopters. So, um, and a lot less expensive. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Okay. Well, I think it's been a great first Twitter space with you, Tara. I'm, I'm I'm glad you were able to jump on there. Hassle-free. Um, I'll, you know, Yes, and I really do hope I get a site visit there at some point there. I love following the company. I love speaking with you. Is there? I'll give you the last uh, word here. Is there anything you want to say? Oh, gosh. You know, um, yeah, thanks for this. It's a lot of fun. Um, I must say that, you know, you call me the uh, executor. Um, and I, I'm flattered by that because, you know, I like to, uh, I really appreciate that you've recognized how, dedicated we are and that we follow through on what we say we're going to do because you know delivering to your shareholders what you said you're going to do I think is part of of your reputation and is something that you know companies need to do more of especially in our space so um, thanks for bringing me a whole new audience and I hope we can get you up gold panning because you can pan gold right from the surface of our project in some of the sediments and the glacial sediments there so um, look forward to having you there and, and have a lot of fun. So I've never done that. That would be a lifetime, uh, you know, an opportunity of a lifetime for sure. And I'm sure I'm I, I'm grateful if it does happen. Um, so I'd like to sign off here uh, with you, President, CEO, and Director of Banyan Gold. I I do urge everybody to reach out to Tara directly if you have any more questions. Um, you know, follow them on Twitter. Follow Tara on Twitter. Um, go to their website. What's the best place for people to reach out to you? Oh, email um, or, or Twitter or Facebook or, you know, any of the social media platforms, we, we answer those. But, you know, our info at Banyan Gold, we monitor that. Um, but hopefully people will come to some of our, our events. We always put our upcoming events too. So, you know, we tend to travel around a bit in the U.S., going to New Orleans in the fall. Um, so, yeah, if, if at all we can find an in-person event, I love to talk to shareholders in person. Brilliant. Well, it's been fantastic. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your evening. It's getting late here. It's pretty much nine o'clock. We'll sign off now. And thanks, everybody, for joining. Pretty big audience today. Thanks for the DMs. Um, Tara, thank you kindly. Thanks, Carl. Have a great night, everybody.